This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. I am Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have a very special guest today. Tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Rachel Richards, and I teach mostly women, also men, about money management and real estate investing. Ooh, I want to get into that gender stuff a little bit later. I don't think that's on our outline, but I think that's pretty important because a lot of this shit is dominated by men, unfortunately. So I want to hear more about that. But before that, uh, what's our fun story, Doug? I'm looking at our outline here. I'm woefully unprepared. So uh, a good thing is like we know Rachel pretty well. Um, I think I met her in uh, FinCon a couple of years ago and we have mutual friends and then you spent some time here in Colorado and you like to hike and I also like to hike. So we've hiked a few times and we've gone out with groups and stuff like that. So why do you like to hike? And maybe you could highlight uh, some recent hikes you went on or something that you're looking forward to coming up. Yeah, I got into hiking because my family decided to hike the Grand Canyon Rim to Rim hike. Are either of you familiar with that one? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So it's a 21 mile hike where you start on one side of the canyon, hike all the way down to the bottom and all the way back up. And most people will sleep at the bottom overnight and then hike back up because it's such a huge hike. But my family, I guess, enjoys pain. So we do it all in one day. (laughs) And my uncle made a bet with me that the first time I did it was I think 2014. He made a bet that I wouldn't be able to do it and finish it. And that year, I just didn't train a lot or prepare. And I was struggling. I was the last one in my family. My dad had to stay back with me. And at one of the last rest stops where there was a bathroom, my dad snuck some of my snacks and food out of my backpack and into his own to lighten my load. And because of that, my uncle called me a cheater. And he said, (laughs) and even though I finished the hike and it took forever, 11 and a half hours, he said, I cheated and I didn't finish the hike. So we hiked this thing again, three or four years later. And I was like, I am going to kick everyone's butt this time. And I'm going to practice and get on this workout regimen and hike every weekend. And I'm going to kick my uncle's butt. So I did that. And I, that time I was the first one in my family to finish in under nine hours and I kicked his ass. And can I cuss on this show? Yeah, you can. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where my love for hiking began because I really got into it. And I just, I did it all the time and I enjoyed it. And then I wanted to move away from Kentucky and out to Colorado. So that's how it all started. <laughs> gotcha. So that's pretty amazing. 21 miles. And if I remember correctly, you go down 5,000 feet, you go down a whole mile and then back up a mile, right? Because you got to get, get back up to the top. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. It is a mile in vertical elevation. So it's a, it's a beast. Jeez. Wow. And um, w- one thing I also want to ask you about before we get into the meat of the interview is what's your favorite Taylor Swift song or album? <laughs> I love that you know this about me. And, and it always makes me think of J.D. Roth too, because he's obsessed with Taylor yeah. Swift as well. So we have that in common. Um, 
That's a really good question. I'm really vibing with Karma right now, her new song. And I think that one's really great. I just put a reel out with that in the background where I'm sort of dancing. And it's just going along with my current stage in life right now, post-divorce. So love that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And JD is actually how um, we got turned on. Well, I- I'm, I'm checking Taylor out currently. Oh, great. Um, I love that for you. Yeah, yeah. I- I'm trying. You know, <laughs> I understand a lot of people are are into it. Uh, so Carl, have you listened to anything yet? Doug, it's funny you mention it. My kid is really into Taylor Swift, my older one. And she's like, let's listen to the album. We were on a road trip this past weekend. Part of it was a road trip. And we listened to the new album. And uh, yeah, it, it's pretty moody. I'm not sure if I like it yet. And there's lots of F-bombs in there too. Like every, All right. there, there was one song, like, FFF. I'm like, oh my God, I thought Taylor Swift was sweet and innocent. And uh, yeah, she isn't. Apparently. Amazing. Yeah. So um, I, I didn't think we'd spend so much time talking about Taylor Swift, but JD has been on the show a couple of times uh, co-hosting with me. So um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot to talk about with Taylor. So, okay, great. <laughs> Let's get into it now. So um, Carl, I'll let you kick it off here. Yeah. We should have Taylor Swift on a future episode. We, we should, we should reach Just out. call her up. Just ask. <laughs> Just yeah, well, we'll get her on when she's in here in July for her show. We'll catch her between shows. We'll offer to come down there to record. Okay. Anyway, uh, Rachel, uh, tell us about your background. Where did you go to school? What was your professional career or what is your professional career? Yes, I went to Center College in Kentucky and I majored in financial economics. I was a financial advisor at first, didn't love the sales part of it. I've learned I can be a really great salesperson but it it doesn't come naturally to me because I'm such an introvert. But I still had this passion for wanting to help people invest their money and learn about money and and feel empowered with money. So I just had to figure out a different way to do that. After I did that, I took some different sort of stints in, in the real estate industry. I became a finance analyst. And then I was able to eventually quit my job. Um, In 2017, just high level overview, my ex-husband and I started investing in real estate. And that year, I also self-published my first book, Money Honey. So we had these two passive income streams, rental income and royalty income. And we focused on growing those as much as we possibly could over the next couple years. So by 2019, we were making $10,000 a month in profits just from our real estate. And we became financially independent. And that was the year I quit my job and just started focusing on growing my business. Um, and a couple things, just because people always ask me, so I always like to clarify. <laughs> I'm not a trust fund baby. And my ex-husband did not fund all these investments himself. We did do that 50-50. <laughs> and I never made six figures from a job or career. I started off making $36,000. So by no means was I raking it in. So that is how I began. And that's how I got to where I am now. And... You've been on a ton of podcasts. You've actually been on my show and you've covered the story in depth like a hundred plus times. So we're going to kind of skip over those areas. Of, of course, Carl, if you want to ask questions, but like there's a lot of stuff we can dig into, um, but we're just going to skip it because you've talked about it so many okay. times before. That sounds good. <laughs> um, and yeah, you must be a little bored telling the same thing. It's just kind of uh, like... It's, it the can be thing. a little redundant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't ever mind, but yes, sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> cool. So how did your family shape your relationship with money? 
That's a great question. I grew up in a very wealthy bubble in Kentucky. It was a county that just was very affluent. And, you know, my family, my parents moved us there so that we could be in a better school system. But we were a family, we were living paycheck to paycheck. And to give you some context, the kids in my high school, some of them, when they turned 16, they got brand new BMWs. My family was just not operating that way. We were on a budget. We were not going out to eat at restaurants, literally, let alone going on family trips. So at a pretty young age, I felt like I didn't fit in. And that is not the way you want to feel in middle school and in high school. So I remember thinking to myself, you know, I was reading books at a young age. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in high school. I read other finance books. And I remember thinking to myself that I I didn't want to struggle with money the way that I saw other people struggling with money or my parents. I didn't want to operate on a strict budget or have to borrow money from family and friends to make it to my next paycheck. I wanted to be different. And I realized then that what I did then would either set me up for wealth or for poverty. So I started taking this whole money thing, financial independence thing really seriously. I started reading books, looking up websites, just learning everything I could. And it sort of lit a fire under me. It was fear-based because I, I just looked around me and I just didn't want to end up in, this, in a similar circumstance. But they say fear can be very motivating or very paralyzing. And luckily for me, it was very motivating where I wanted to become financially independent. So that's, that's how it shaped me. And then do you have siblings and where, where do you fit in there? And did they, do they have the same sort of mindset or is it a little different? Yes, I have a younger sister and an older sister. They are both really great with their money as well. Um, I feel like I think I've been a good influence on them and they're really smart. So they would have figured this stuff out anyways, but um, I don't think they're quite as entrepreneurial as I am, but they're, they're amazing. You know, they're so smart. They're doing such amazing things in their career. My oldest, older sister has figured out a path where she can have flexibility with her job because she's a travel nurse. So she can move all over the U S she can hike, she can explore, she can do all the things she wants to do. And she's making a ton of money. So they've figured out really successful careers. My younger sister is a really successful engineer in Arizona. She's crushing it as well. So yeah, I'm super proud of both of them. That's awesome. Uh, a couple of follow-up questions. How did you learn real estate investing? I learned it um, pretty much on my own. I don't come from a real estate family. I start Again, I started reading books. I read a ton and a ton of books. And then eventually I realized I needed to get into a job where I could learn from somebody and sort of shadow somebody and see what somebody else was doing. So after I quit financial advising, I found a job where I could work for somebody who was flipping houses and sort of be his assistant. And I took a pay cut to do that. I went from 36000 to 32000 But to me, it was worth taking that pay cut to surround myself by the right people and learn the knowledge because I knew I wanted to invest in real estate. I also took a job working for a realtor. I got my real estate license in that time. One of those two people paid for me to get my real estate license. So I then took the classes to do that. Um, so it was a combination of me learning and then surrounding myself with the right people and getting sort of educated through the jobs that I had. Super cool. You mentioned fear. And I have a comment about that. You can comment on what I'm going to say if you want. But 
Yeah, I think I can really relate a lot to your story because we never had tons of money growing up either. So for me, I never wanted to live like that. I never wanted to struggle or do anything like that. My dad would get laid off and then we'd have these sad conversations. So as soon as I could, I figured out how to make money and figured out how to invest it. And my high school is kind of interesting in that half of it was kind of from an impoverished area and the other half was pretty wealthy. And I remember some of my wealthy friends, they were they didn't have the drive. They just wanted the, the security. So uh, I don't want to say they didn't amount to much, but the fear was such a great motivator for me and them just trying to stay in their safe place. And it was more in preservation mode, even from like I, even from being young, they just didn't have the drive. So yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the fear comment. Yeah, I agree. I'm so grateful that not everything was handed to me. And that, for example, my college education wasn't paid for. My parents couldn't afford to pay for my college. So I always knew I either had to pay for it myself or graduate with a ton of debt. And because things weren't handed to me, I felt like I had to work harder than anybody else to be at the same place that they were already at. And that's what gave me a lot of my drive and ambition. So I'm forever grateful that I've felt at a disadvantage, even though I'm not, I'm not saying I was in poverty or, or anything like that. We were in the middle class, but just comparatively, I, I felt at a disadvantage because of the people I was surrounded by at that time. But, but I am grateful for that because it made me work that much harder. Awesome. All right. And let's, let's shift into some of uh, the business areas. So you have a lot of uh, income streams and you self-published a book, a couple of them actually, I think. And if I have this right, you can correct me, Rachel, if I'm wrong. Uh, you made 22K in October of 2022 from your self-published books. And is that is that right? Yes, yes, that's correct. And that's just one month's worth, right? Yes. Okay. So why did you think that you could self-publish a book in 2017 and did you have like a vision of what it was going to be or what it could be? Great question. And that month was an anomaly. So that was my biggest month ever. And that was really exciting. Most months I make a few thousand dollars, maybe between four and 10, which is still a lot. It's still really cool. So why did I think I could self-publish a book? It, it goes back to, I always had this passion to help Women, especially because I am one and I saw my girlfriend struggle and they were the ones who came to me for money advice. So I just felt this compassion and empathy that, gosh, these, these women need my help and I am one and I feel like I can help them. So how to do that? I had always wanted to write a book and whenever someone came to me for advice, I kept thinking, well, why aren't they reading books and listening to podcasts and doing all these things that I was doing? And then I thought to myself, oh, yeah, um, personal finance is boring, right? It's intimidating. It's complex. It's overwhelming. No wonder people don't like to learn about it. So I thought to myself, how can I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from. So once I had that sort of spark and I, had, I read this book published by Chandler Bolt, which I highly recommend if you're looking at writing a book or wanting to write a book. I just sat down. I started writing. The, the words came pouring out of me. It was a passion project at first. It was not something I ever intended to really make money on or that I thought would turn into this big business. Just something I wanted to do to help people. 
And that's why I, I started writing my book, my first book, Money, Honey. And that was um, 2017, if I had that correct. Yes. And at that point, you were two years before you hit FI and quit your job. Did you feel like you were qualified to write a book in that space, right? Like you were maybe early in, in the journey? In some ways, yes, but in a lot of ways, no. I really struggled with imposter syndrome throughout the writing process for multiple reasons because four months into the writing process, first of all, I I did a complete mental 180. I started telling myself things like, who do you think you are, Rachel, to write a book about finance? You're a young woman. No one's going to listen to you. What do you think you know? You're no Dave Ramsey. You know, you're just... You're just some. You're just an average person, um, and I was telling myself, "Your writing sucks. It's going to be an embarrassment if you go through with this." And so, because of all of that angst, I quit writing the book, and I had no intention of ever picking it back up again. It wasn't until I sat down with one of my good friends several weeks later that, I, and I confessed to her my book idea, and she looked at me and she said, "Rachel." you have to finish what you set out to do. You're really onto something here. And she gave me just enough encouragement and reassurance that I picked the book back up. And I told myself, if I can just help one person, that is all I care about. And that's truly what I told myself. I, that's the only reason I, I had enough courage to go through with publishing it. And even after I published it and it started making money, and I started getting good feedback from friends and family. I didn't believe any of that because they're my friends and family, right? They're going to tell me it's good. They're going to support me. <laughs> so I still had this imposter syndrome. I still couldn't really fully get behind the book until maybe six months later when I started receiving emails from random people all over the country, strangers on the internet, telling me things like, Rachel, thank you so much for writing this book. I've paid off my credit cards. I've paid down my student loan debt. I've started investing in the stock market. You've changed my life. And I was like, oh my God, I think I've actually written a good book. Like I, I can't believe it. And I picked it back up and I was like, I think this is, this is good. And so I say that because I was so hung up on the wrong questions when I was in that very vulnerable, scared mindset. And I was thinking, you know, what if I do this and I fail? What if I do this and it sucks and it doesn't sell? And what if I do it and I embarrass myself? And I encourage you to stop thinking that way because what you need to ask yourself is what if you don't do this and someone continues to suffer because you gave into your fear? It can really be selfish for you not to share your unique gift with the world because you're too scared. So think about it that way. People need you. They need your help. They need the advice that you have to give. And it can be very brave and courageous to put yourself out there. And so I really encourage that you do that. Wow, it's hard to follow that up with anything. But I like the mindset because a, a book is a, I've always thought a book is a pretty difficult thing because you're going to spend a whole lot of time. There's a whole lot of sunk costs into this and you don't know how it's going to turn out most of the time, especially if you're self-published. If you've got a, a big publisher behind you, yeah, you know, you're probably going to make some money, but but otherwise, it's a huge leap of faith you're going to put all that time into it. But when you reframe it like that, as long as it helps someone, even one person, uh, that changes everything, I think. 
Yeah. And I think if you have the right intention behind it, that makes a big difference too. I truly did not think I was going to make money. And just to show you how little I believed in myself too, most people spend thousands of dollars to launch a book. I was like, I can't afford to lose all this money. So I spent $561 to launch Money Honey. Most of that was on an editor. And I was like, so that money's gone. You know, I'm not going to see a penny of that back. So I thought for sure that was a loss. But to my surprise, I made $600 in the first month and then 1000 a month and then $1,500 a month. And it kind of s- slowly crept up from there. Um, but it is. It is a big leap of faith and it's very scary. And that's what makes it so hard. Sure. Would you ever consider a, tra- a traditional book deal? I maybe. I looked into it for my second book. I got so far as having a literary agent be willing to represent me, which was a big, big milestone. That's a big big deal for anyone trying to go down that route. But I just decided I didn't know I couldn't I couldn't figure out or justify why it would make sense. I used to be so enamored with the idea of a traditional book deal because I am this, you know, shy introverted person and the idea of marketing my book and promoting my book and asking people to buy it was so cringy to me. I just didn't want to do it. So I thought if I got a traditional book deal and I could just write the book and give it to them, and they could market it for me. I was like, that sounds great. That's what I want to do. But once I started asking around other authors and doing some research, I realized that's not the way it works at all. A book publisher still expects the author to do 99% of the marketing and promoting. And once I realized that, I was like, well, why am I giving up my royalty, most of my royalty to a book publisher if I'm still going to do all the marketing? Because with traditional publishing, you're going to make a 10 to 15% royalty. With self-publishing, you would make a 35 to 70% royalty. So you're making so much more money. You're going to keep creative control over your book. Um, there, to me, there's just still so many more reasons to self-publish than to traditional publish. So that is what I intend to keep doing for now. And you said you would consider it. So what would pull you over to a traditional deal then? Yeah, there are some things that a traditional publisher can do. They can compete on the Wall Street Journal and New York Times bestseller. So if I ever wanted to try to become a New York Times bestseller, which is still really hard to do, I would have to do that. But there's a lot of hybrid sort of self-publishers now that can also compete on those lists, where it's sort of a halfway between a self-published and traditional publisher. So I might consider that. For whatever reason, I have this idea in my mind that if I were ever to write a fiction book, it might be a better idea to go with a traditional publisher. And I have no logical reasoning behind that. I have no idea why I think that, but that's what I think for some reason. Uh, it <laughs> so makes some sense. Cool. Like, I don't know. Because <laughs> you're, you're able to sell to your audience really well, but a fiction book may be like, not what they want to buy. So yeah, it's a to totally me. different thing and a different beast. It intimidates me. And then the other reason, Doug, is that to have your books translated and sold in other countries, pretty much the only way to do that is to have traditional book or traditional publisher representation. So for example, I do have a literary agent for my foreign rights deals. And I am traditionally published now in several countries and my books are translated into Vietnamese, Korean, Chinese, and um, one other language, Russian. So I have traditional book deals for those purposes and that makes sense. Got it. Interesting. And one other thing, I recently interviewed another friend and she she has like four cookbooks, um, but she also had a blog ahead of time. So she said 
the traditional deal got her in front of like a national audience for spot. So the PR that she got from it was great. So she does like regular spots on like Rachel Ray and some other stuff like that. So that was one thing. I mean, she probably could have hooked that up, but it was much easier to have like the PR connections to make it happen. Probably tough to get into Rachel Ray or another, you know, national personalities uh, show on a regular basis. Yeah. And I agree with that. Yeah. All right, cool. So anything else on the the book front, Carl, you want to ask? I don't think so. Okay. Carl, you've mentioned writing a book. What what would you write about? Do you know? Yeah, I have thought of that. I actually outlined a book. Uh, yeah, personal finance, but you can't just write about – that's been covered so many times. The only way you can make it unique is to bring some of your own story into it. So I would probably do that. But that's kind of – Risky too. I was looking at a review for someone who just wrote a book and they brought a lot of their own story into it. And a lot of the reviews were like, oh, I got this book for actionable information and there, there's all this fluff in there. So yeah, it's a delicate balance, but I don't know if I'll ever do it. That's a, that's a big ask and a lot of time I don't have time to do anything. So it might never happen, Doug. Yeah. We'll have to get someone to like put together the notes and stories from the show and then they'll just edit it into a great book. We could have a, uh, have you heard about the new Weird Al Yankovic movie? I have. Yeah, yeah. I haven't watched it yet. But. Okay. It seems pretty interesting. It's a biography, but it's all like shit they made up. None of it's real. Oh, so, really? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that about the podcast. <laughs> I that love could it. Be. Yeah. Norm MacDonald had a book like that too. Okay. It's like supposed to be all true stories, but it's all just yeah. like fake and stuff. Then, and then Taylor Swift asked us to open for and we we're like, no, we're too busy that day. And, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit more about real estate. So in 2019, you said you were making $10,000 a month in profits. Where are you now? How many doors do you have? Are the Have the profits grown? And I know your situation has changed a little bit since you have a divorce. So if that's relevant, please uh, mention that as well. Yes, for sure. My portfolio has changed so much over the years. So in 2019, we, my ex-husband and I were making 10 a month in passive profits from 38 doors six properties. So it was, I think it was like $263 a door in profit. It was a very strong portfolio. A lot of this portfolio was made up from our boarding houses, which were these rent by the room, communal living style houses in Louisville, Kentucky. And they were cash cows. They did really well. It was a win-win because we were providing affordable housing to the community and tenants only had to pay $600 a month to get a fully furnished room, and that included utilities and Wi-Fi. So we just loved we loved these houses. Now, they were a lot of work. They were a lot of work, but we were willing to work harder to make this huge cash flow up front early on in our journey when we didn't have a lot of money starting out. So anyways, that's where we were in 2019. Then in last year, in 2021, we sold most of our portfolio off. We sold all three boarding houses, which was 34 of our units. And our obviously our cash flow dropped a lot. But ever since then, I've been working on reinvesting that money into real estate syndications. And real estate syndications, for anyone listening who isn't familiar, are, for example, if somebody goes out and wants to buy a $10 million apartment complex and she can't afford to buy it, she can form a syndication And this allows her to raise money from private investors, people like you and me, where we can invest 
let's say twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars into this apartment complex, and then we become a part owner. So we are entitled to profits. We are entitled to a portion of the cash flow. We are entitled to a portion of the profit if it ever sells or is refinanced. And we are a passive investor. We put our money in, and then we don't have to do anything. The syndicator is the one who finds the property, finds the tenants, does the renovations, manages it. We are just passive investors. So when I started learning about syndications, I got really excited because I'm now at a point in my wealth where I care more about time than money. I want to work less hard and free up my time, even if that make, means making less money. So I've done a little bit of a switch here, which is great. So my plan was to let's sell these boarding houses and let's transition this money into syndications. And that's what I've been sort of doing ever since and trying to build back up to that $10,000 a month in cash flow. Now, obviously, this year with the divorce, everything has been complicated and our, our stuff has been further divided, which um, I'm not quite ready to talk about. But my goal still is to get myself back up to that 10K a month in profits from my real estate. I have a follow-up question. I know a couple of people who do the boarding houses here. And in my mind, when I hear that, it kind of scares me because I, I worry about personality conflicts. You're going to have your own room probably, but you're going to have communal areas like bathrooms and kitchen. And I know one guy actually who lives in one of them and he's like, yeah, I can't stand this roommate. I'm like, Brandon, like, <laughs> why, why not? What happens there? He's like, well, sometimes when he goes pee, he doesn't flush. He's a, if it's yellow, let it mellow kind of guy. I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of. Weird, but if that's the biggest problem, it doesn't sound too big to me. But were there ever issues like that where two people just don't get along and you have to go in there and mediate? Oh, Carl. <laughs> this was like <laughs> this was like having 34 adult children. Okay. So I feel like I know what parenting is. Uh, not really. Not really. Parenting must be extremely difficult. But um, yeah, it was like always mediating these stupid fights because they were to me they were stupid it was like this guy is doing his laundry late at night and it's making noise and it's quiet hours or like this person keeps having an overnight guest and you know they, there's limit to how many overnight guests they can have um this person i think ate my food out of the fridge and it's just that's that's what i mean when i say these were a pain <laughs> And, why, and part of the reason I wanted to sell them. So yes, it happened a lot and it was, it was annoying. We just sent a lot of notices, a lot of warnings. We, I literally sometimes felt like when my ex-husband and I went in there, we were parents and we were like, look, you all need to work this out. You know, like we just had to put our foot down and just be stern. It was, it was very difficult to manage. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, if, if I had that, I think I would give them free rent and with their permission, put cameras in there and make the whole thing a big reality show, like one of those MTV things. And then, oh, yeah. And then just get all kinds of abrasive people in there. And yeah. 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 I mean, we, we learned to laugh at a lot of this stuff. And we did have security cameras in the common areas. So sometimes we would have to look at footage to, ver to look at stuff and be like, that's not what happened. And yeah. As you can tell, such a pain. <laughs> okay. This strategy is not for me, but I have one follow-up question, right. which is not on your outline, which we alluded to in the introduction. You said your audience is primarily female. How might, what percentage do you think it is? That's hard to say. For example, my Instagram following is about 70% women because I can just look at that 
statistic. In terms of my students who kind of enroll in my programs and courses, um, my I have a rental property boot camp. I would say it's about 50-50. But then I have one program that's women only, and that's my mastermind. And I just do that because it's a different vibe and to me sort of a safe space for women when I make it women only. I know there's male only masterminds, so I don't feel bad about it, but I do feel bad when men are like, Oh, I wish you had, you know, I wish you would let me in or I wish there was something you had for men. Um, but I just feel like there's so many male only stuff or there's so many real estate investing programs and resources that men run or that are geared towards men. And it's just, there's not as much stuff for women. And it's just something I'm passionate about. You know, my whole sort of brand and books were built because I wrote a, I basically wrote that book money, honey, as if I was writing it to my best friend. And that's what I envisioned it. And it resonated. It resonated a lot with female millennials. And that doesn't mean guys can't read it because I certainly have a lot of male readers and I love helping men too, but that's kind of what I'm passionate about, if that makes sense. Yeah. And one quick follow-up, what are some of the unique things that women struggle with in real estate investing? Confidence. And I know, I know guys struggle with that too. Um, definitely confidence though. And I I really think this isn't just for women, women and men struggle with the same things. Confidence analysis paralysis is a huge thing that everyone struggles with because there's so many strategies. There's so many markets to invest in. There's so many ways to go about it. So that can be very confusing. The two biggest obstacles I see, and this is why I, I even launched my rental property bootcamp are number one, how to find a great market in this deal or in this, how to, I said that wrong, how to find a great deal in this market. And that's why I teach about finding off market properties because everyone is looking on the MLS. I personally think that's too competitive and too saturated. And yes, you, you could find a great deal. I just think it's going to be harder. So it's important you look off market. It's important you look out of state, especially if you're somebody who lives in California, for example, it's going to be hard to find a great deal there. And then the second thing people struggle with that I've seen is how do I know when it's a good deal? How do I know, how do I run the numbers? How do I recognize that, yeah, this is a deal I should make an offer on? And that's something, I'm a spreadsheet nerd. So this is something I know to a T and I love teaching about. And I'm very conservative on, and yeah, anyone can go out and make 15 offers a week on properties. Sure, I see a lot of people doing that. But to me, I'm like, how on earth would anyone be able to make 15 offers a week in a market like this right now? Um, to me, it's quality over quantity. And I'm very conservative in the offers that I would ever be making. And that's how I built a portfolio that's making a 25 or 30% cash on cash ROI. So that's, that's something I'm passionate about. Cool. And that all makes sense. I mean, people struggle with the same things, but the way that you communicate because you're in that demographic and audience, like you could frame it in a way that I guess draws in that kind of audience. And in my audience is it's like the opposite, but similar. So it's like 70, 80% male, usually in the it area, because that's where I came from and that's how I talk. And that, that makes sense. So, yeah, I think just in general, women want, would rather learn from another woman if they could, or maybe I'm, Assuming that might not be right at all. But you're Men might explaining to us right now, I think. Is that a, <laughs> I'm woman explaining. Yeah. Might be. <laughs> I'll reel it in. <laughs> yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Sorry, I cut you off, but I, I think you. Oh, you're good. Okay, cool. 
Is woman splaining a thing? Can I? I should not have said that, huh? Yeah, you're gonna get canceled, dog. <laughs> canceled. Yeah, it's okay though, Rachel. Right? That was in good spirits, right? I yeah, I'm not offended. Great. I'm okay. not an easily offended person. So, and plus we're friends, so I you know yeah. I know your intent. <laughs> the, the context was okay. Okay, and you mentioned <laughs> courses and and masterminds. So you're doing all this real estate stuff. Uh, you're doing a great job. It's working. You wrote the book. Things are going well. Why did you spend time on courses and creating them? And it's a lot of work. So, yeah, what what got you started? Yeah, uh, what got me started is that after I had these two successful books going, people just started asking me, "When when are you going to do a course? You know, when are you?" And so I was like, "Oh, well, that I guess I should do that." <laughs> you know, um, I, I was not very intentional about my business. You all, I wasn't a good business person. I didn't even start a website until a year after my book launched. I did many, many things wrong. Okay. So anyone listening to this, who's like, wow, everything went right for her. She did everything right. That's, that's incorrect. I did every, I did almost everything wrong. Um, but I think because I just listened, I, I focused on how to solve people's problems my business did well anyways. I just focused on adding value to people and that was my number one focus. So in spite of everything I messed up and did wrong, I still succeeded, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I, everyone was asking me when I was gonna do a course and I finally launched one in the middle of COVID and here's why. Anyone can pick up a book and read a book, but how many people are actually implementing what they learn? And when I thought this question through for a long time, because it's true for myself, I struggle with self-discipline. I think that's one of the biggest struggles people have in general in any area. Like one, one of the biggest areas for me is diet. I know what to do. I know to eat 120 grams of protein a day. I know not to eat desserts. So, so why is it so freaking hard to actually do those things? Like, these are my daily goals every day. How often do I actually do them? 10% of the time. It's so frustrating. But if I had accountability, if I had a coach, a personal trainer, a group that I was paying to be in to hold me accountable, my levels of success would be 10 times higher than they are now. So once I realized that and put that together, I was like, I'm doing a disservice by not providing that for people. And it, again, it was just me listening to what people needed and then providing that to them. So that's why I created my first course, which is Get Your Financial Shit Together. It's a money management course that goes along with my book. And the, the whole purpose of it was to give the people who followed me this structure and support and an accountability they needed to actually implement what they were learning. And I think that's what a good course does. It just it goes to that next level so that people can succeed. And then why, why put it in a course and not on YouTube for free? Um, I think people need skin in the game. It's the same thing. Anyone can go, you know, look at a video on YouTube. It's anyone can go look up information for free. It's the exact same thing. It's, but they need help and accountability to implement it. And part of that accountability comes with having skin in the game you are going to be much more likely to follow through with your commitment if you spend $200 on it than if you go look it up for free, right? So I think that's part of it, in my opinion. Yeah, 100%. I have courses as well. And anyone that I've given the course to for free, they didn't do shit with it. 
and it's disappointing and they're like, yeah, yeah. And then I, so I stopped giving it away for free. And then if they, if a friend wants it, like I'm, I would maybe give it to them, but I also tell them, uh, that if they got it for free, they're not going to value it at all. Yeah. I think it's human psychology. People assign value to something they have to pay for too. If it's given to them for free, they're like, yeah, it it might not be that valuable, but if I had to pay for it, it's, it's probably better than. I don't value nearly as much stuff that I can access for free. And here's a good example of that. I, this sounds so ridiculous, but one of the best ways I can hold myself accountable is by making bets. And I, so I was really struggling with trying to be healthy and I was feeling sort of gross about the, about myself and really wanted to clean my diet up. And I knew I was having trouble doing that myself. So I literally had to put a monetary value on it to make it happen. And I think I might've told you this at one point, Doug, but I made a bet. I made a $2,000 bet that I, so that if I gave, if I gave up for two months, I had to give up alcohol, marijuana, and desserts for two months. And if I messed up, then I would have to pay $2,000. And it's the only way I could get myself to do it. And I was successful, but if I hadn't made that bet, I wouldn't have done it. So I think that's the same idea. Yeah. What were the results uh, after after that, like uh, fitness wise or, uh, you know, weight or whatever you want to share? It was great. I wasn't weighing myself. I might have lost, I wasn't doing it to lose weight. I might have lost a couple pounds, but I was doing it to improve my body composition and my body fat percentage. And that's been a big, big goal of mine. Um, my weight doesn't matter, but I want to gain more muscle and lose fat. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm more focused on. And doing that challenge helped improve other areas of my life too. You know, I had more energy. I was, I had better workouts in the gym. I was just more accountable in other areas of my life as well. Um, but I do, yeah, the results were fantastic. I felt good. I felt like I looked good. I felt good in my clothes. It was just a big self-confidence boost. Wow. Sounds amazing. Doug, we are going to do this. This (laughs) is the motivation I need, but after the holidays, like January 1st and I'm going to do a a wait one. So we'll bring a scale. And if I don't meet my goal, I'll have to give you money or your charity money. Okay. Well, okay. Here's the way to do this is that, okay. I got this idea from Craig Curlop, which you both know. You both know. And the bet is that you have, if you lose, you have to pay whatever money to somebody you don't like. (laughs) So I didn't owe Craig the money. I like, I picked a different person that, and he knew um, that I would have to pay the money to somebody I didn't like. And I got this idea because Craig was doing 75 hard earlier in the year. And he made the bet that he would have to pay $10,000 to this contractor that screwed him over (laughs) if he didn't complete 75 hard. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you crazy? But that's where I got the idea. And now I'm doing it again. I'm in another two month thing where I'm doing this through the holidays. Really? Oh man. Yeah. And I just, I went... Speaking of doing a bad job eating and exercising, I went back to Atlanta for my sister's 50th birthday. So it was like, you know, party, ton of drinking. Uh, We made a bunch of food. We were eating all day, desserts all over the place. And I just went off the rails. So it was like four or five days of just like eating terrible. And I haven't swung back. In fact, I was enjoying it so much when I got back here and it's cooler weather in Colorado. I was like, it's fall now. I'm going to like get ready to hibernate. Like let's eat more dessert. And we just had the, the pre Thanksgiving stuff. So there's like pumpkin pie and I've been making like a fresh whipped cream, you know, with heavy cream right before we have, I mean, 
it's great, but I, I'm getting a little doughy, you know, and I can see it and I, I don't like it. Yeah. It's dangerous territory too, with the holidays coming up and yeah. Yeah. Well, if anyone receives a check for a large amount from Doug, <laughs> you know what it means. <laughs> I was going to ask, so how do you reconcile that? Is it like a entity? So it's not an individual person or is it like someone in, in the friend circle and then they end up getting like $2,000 from you and they're like, why is Rachel paying me $2,000 for no reason? How do you? <laughs> well, you I don't know. Cause out? now everyone will know my secret. So, <laughs> so somebody will know if they ever get a check for me. But the thing is, it's such a high amount that I don't think I will ever fail if I right. do one of these bets. Cause it's, it's so motivating. Not only are you losing that money, but you're losing it to somebody that that's like an enemy. That's, I would <laughs> never mess up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very powerful. So and while we're talking about fitness and exercise and stuff, yeah, what is like your fitness routine for like the week or the day or like how, how do you treat it? Okay, I love this topic. And I never get to talk about this on podcast, so thanks for asking. Are you – do you all know David Goggins? Yes. Okay. Oh, Carl, I'm going to send you the book. All right. So for anyone listening, my literally top book – favorite book of all time in my lifetime is Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. And I love it because it changed my life. And I think it can, it's really about um, David Goggins is a Navy, Navy SEAL. And it's about how he came from these just horrible circumstances as this young black kid who was dealing with racism and abusive father, all this stuff, and how he just pushed against all odds, literally to become one of the toughest Navy SEALs in history. And it's an amazing story. And a lot of people take it for its fitness lessons. But to me, it can be applied to any area of your life because it's really about how do you overcome sort of a victim mindset and take control over your life and take ownership over your life. Um, and how do you just toughen your mindset? And despite any circumstances you're in, realize that you can get out of those circumstances. So I think it's powerful. I think it can be applied to finance, finances as well. That's why I love the book. Um, I read this book, I think in January, 2021, and it just set me on a fitness path that I've been on ever since. So I'm forever grateful. What I do now for fitness is I try to weight lift three or four times a week, four times a week is what I try I try to do Stairmaster once a week or hike once a week if I'm in an area where there's good hiking. And then I'm trying to be better with my health and nutrition, but that's always way harder for me than fitness. But yeah, my goal is to have more muscle mass and to get my body fat percentage to 25%. And I'm doing a DEXA scan about once a quarter to track that because the DEXA scan is the best way to measure body fat. So I know I'm rambling, but I'm like really into fitness and nutrition. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So 2021 is when you, you really like went after it. And before that, were you like a casual, uh, like workout person or did you do anything before that? I had done some stuff. I had actually tracked macros several years ago in 2016 and 2017. And, um, I weighed about 25 pounds more back then. And I started tracking macros and finally was pretty successful with it and really strict. And I lost about 20 pounds wow. and I was really happy with that. But after tracking macros for a year, I recognized that I was forming an unhealthy relationship with food. 
and the macro tracking got too strict for me. I was, you know, some days only eating like 12 or 1300 calories and I wasn't working out at all. So, but it was unhealthy. You know, I'm five, six, I was maybe 25 at the time. Um, it wasn't enough calories and I was plateauing with the weight loss. So it just, it was too restrictive. So I just recognized that. And I was like, what I'm doing isn't healthy and I need to stop. So I stopped tracking macros. I am grateful for what I learned because I can now recognize that if I'm what I'm eating in a day, if it's enough, it's if it's not enough, if I'm getting enough protein without even tracking it because of how much I did that. Um, and now if I track anything, it's to make sure I'm getting enough. You know, I track stuff now to make sure I'm getting enough protein, to make sure I'm eating enough calories because to gain muscle mass, you have to make sure you're getting enough. So that was that experience. I also did CrossFit several years ago and that was great because it taught me about having good form with things like deadlifts and back squats and doing all these heavy lifting, which I now do regularly in my workouts today. And then do you take um, any supplements or even like protein shakes to like supplement uh, the, the, your protein intake for the day? When, yeah, I, I haven't gotten into the supplements. That's maybe something I'd like to explore but I do eat protein bars and protein drinks to get try to get enough protein. I used to be so intimidated at the idea of eating 100 grams or 120 grams or whatever. But when you focus on it and you learn how to eat the right things, it's a lot easier than you think. Yeah. Cool. And then, Carl, do you take any supplements? or uh, I do the creatine because mm. I, I think you and I started talking about that. And then it came uh, – I've always been very skeptical of them because yeah. I think uh, most of them are bullshit. But when you hear it consistently from multiple trusted sources, you know it's probably a good idea. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that and just whey protein. Okay, cool. And I, I take that. I've been experimenting with a couple other things for like uh, – it's like nitric oxide, something or other. It's like a pre-workout thing but without caffeine. So – I'm playing around with that. I don't think it's doing much. I, I need to work harder. I, I like I'm trying to use a crutch of <laughs> supplements and stuff. I just got to work harder. It's tough. <laughs> cool. Uh, anything else, Rachel, with um, working out or fitness or, or anything like that? No, just read David Goggins' book, and then you will be motivated to get off your couch and go to the gym. So those are my final thoughts. <laughs> and the audio book, by the way, is yes. fantastic. Yeah, he, he reads it. It's, it's great. And there's some commentary, if I remember right, right, Rachel? Yeah, there's like three hours extra of commentary in the audio book that's not in the actual book. So, And I'm not a big audiobook person. I prefer a paperback, but this is one of the only exceptions. So good, good call. Cool. All right. Well, let's let's shift over to the social media area here. And you're big on social media. Um, how big, if you can give us a scope of that? And like, do you keep track of followers? Is that like a vanity metric? Or um, is it something that you're watching because it drives the business? I only keep track because if I'm losing followers, then then what I'm doing isn't resonating or isn't adding enough value. So it, it's informing me of something. So that's why I keep track of it. So I have 100,000 followers on Instagram, 220 on TikTok. Um, I have email subscribers. I have Facebook groups that have 100,000. So, so yeah, several hundred thousand total. Wow. That, <laughs> that sounds 
pretty staggering. Like, did you have a background in social media at all beforehand? No, no. And it is staggering and it scares me. When I can't think about it too hard. Um, I just hit the 100,000 mark on Instagram a couple weeks ago. And then I was like, cool, you know, this is, this is a cool milestone. And then I was like, well, I need to go, I want to go crawl under a rock now. Because if I think about it too hard, I mean, every time I post, this is so many people that is potentially seeing it. And it's, I'm, you know, it's kind of scary. <laughs> how many people see it in our like interactive, like how many active uh, followers in the hundred K if there's a metric that tracks that? Oh, that's a good question. I, a lot of my reels, for example, because I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but a lot of my reels will get between 50 to 100,000 views. Okay. So it is quite a lot. Wow. And one scary thing that I'll touch on just related to like this topic is when I first announced my divorce, which I hate to word it that way. I had to make like an announcement. It sounds so cheesy or something. <laughs> but, and I didn't have to, but... I, you know, I really strive to be transparent and authentic with my followers about everything. I've always been transparent about where my money comes from, how I got the down payment for my first rental, how much money I'm making. You know, I, there's no gatekeeping. So I really wanted to share what was happening this whole year because for legal reasons, I I hadn't been able to talk about it until it was finalized. And I had been going on these trips. I was in Italy for two months over the summer and posting stuff and it looked cool. And then I felt so inauthentic because no one knew the pain I was in. And I didn't want to be another influencer that was traveling all over the world and financially independent and had what looked like a cool life without people knowing that like, it was actually the hardest year I've ever had and it was really shitty. And appearances are not always what they seem. So anyways, I created this reel finally showing, hey, this is actually what my life has been like. This is what I've been going through. You know, I'm, I'm really not emotionally okay right now. And, you know, this is what's happening. And I remember that morning about to post it and I was literally, my hands were shaking. I, cause I've never posted anything so vulnerable to so many people and my hands were shaking and I clicked post and it went out and then I called my mom And then my mom and I were just both kind of watching it and watching some of the comments start to come in. And then we're both crying (laughs) and we're like, oh my God, people are being so nice. They're being so supportive. And I just did not imagine the outpouring of love and support that I received that day. And I'm so, so grateful for that. But yeah, it's, it's a, I'm very grateful for the, for the love that I have on that platform. Cool. I'd like to talk about another platform, which is TikTok. Every time I've been to a social media, anytime I've heard someone discuss social media in the past six months to a year, they always say, you have to be on TikTok. Uh, Do you agree? Is TikTok all it's cut out to be? I'm still not on TikTok. I've watched like one video and it was stupid, so I never went back. But (laughs) what do you think about TikTok? No, I I don't agree. Um, I don't know what TikTok really does or how it converts. It's really hard to measure conversion from TikTok. Um, I love it as a consumer. I think it's hilarious. I spend time watching TikToks and, you know, I, I do have a big following there, but again, I don't know what it has done for my business or how it's converted to my email list. Sometimes when I have a really viral video, which does not really happen a lot anymore, I will see an uptick on my email subscribers and that's great. 
but I don't think it's necessary. So, and TikTok is a mean place. My God, mm-hmm. it is cr- yeah. it is cruel. So, I had to learn to have a tough skin on TikTok. <laughs> it's, it's cruel because people can leave comments. I'm showing my ignorance of the platform. People can leave <laughs> nasty comments like YouTube or yeah, but they can do that anywhere. They can do that on Instagram too. I think the difference is a lot of my followers on Instagram found me because they read my book. So there's already a likability factor and a trust factor on TikTok you are so much more likely to have strangers find you because it's so, I think it's more random. It's more of an algorithm. When a video goes viral, it's you're, you're going viral in front of people that don't know you. So I just think it makes it easier for strangers to be mean. So that's my opinion. It's, it's harsh. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Do you have a TikTok channel, Doug? No, no. So I, was a consumer for a short time. And then one of my friends was like, oh yeah, you should check it out. Like I am able to convert people over to my email list. And uh, like he was working on it. Um, So I was like, oh, maybe I'll give it a shot. And then I like normal things. I just didn't follow up. I I think I created like a couple uh, TikToks and then just didn't do any more. Nothing really took off. I didn't spend time on it. I don't care that much. And then um, it was a huge time waster with like me getting basically nothing out of it. And some people are like, Oh, you can learn things, but I can learn stuff in another place. That's not so distracting. And I have a longer attention span than like what one fucking minute. Is it, is it a minute? Is that right? Yeah. So I, I can like watch something that's like three minutes or even five sometimes. So incredible. um, Good for you. (laughs) Not to brag. And then the, um, the other part, which I don't want to, uh, like jump into conspiracy theories here, but like it's just spyware, right? Like they are tracking so much data and it's a, it's not good overall. So again, I don't want to dive deep into that, but like Rachel, do you have any concerns on that, on the data front? I really prefer that the phrase ignorance is bliss <laughs> when it comes to that because tiktok is so funny to me so i'll just be an ignorant consumer for now thank you okay (laughs) yeah and then do you know anything about that part carl i've heard some of the concerns that uh, there's rumors that uh, the american government government might eventually shut it down or force them to sell to an american holder if they want to remain active in this country but right oh wow yeah and the, the thing is i think if they force the the sale, um, the parent company in China could sue uh, if they don't get as much money as they think they should based on the valuation, right? So anyway, it could be easier just to say this thing's banned, which yeah. seems very un-American. Oh. But uh, I mean, I don't think it'll probably happen, but like, and the no. thing is like, our, no one gives a shit about my data. Like, I understand that. Like, I'm nobody. It doesn't matter. But when you start like digging a little deeper, you can see like, oh, it's not the greatest situation. So again, I want to avoid conspiracy theory stuff. Um, but people do do some research. Go watch some, uh, it's probably not on TikTok. You're going to have to go to another place. But yeah, the data stuff is kind of weird. And I mean, just e- even on Instagram and Meta and like all, all the all the data that is available, like I'm trying to stop using Instagram because I was just like, mindlessly scrolling for no reason Mm. so i've like turned on screen time and i have i have it set for like five minutes a day so i'm pretty much out uh that said rachel how much time do you spend on social media 
Ooh, should I look right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. This well, is going to be not good. Yeah. How do I get to, sc- okay, screen time. And I'll buy you some time and talk here while you're pulling it up. So for me, um, I think it was, you know, two to three hours per um, week or so. So, you know, you spread it out across the week. It's not too bad. And potentially some of it is like work related, but a lot of it is just like scrolling um, reels or, or whatever. So yeah, Rachel, how does it look over there for you? Really embarrassing. But I would like to defend myself to say <laughs> that I run my business from my phone a lot. I mean, I will say the number. Sure. And oh my God, it's my daily average. Oh my God, is six hours and 57 minutes. Okay. That sounds like a lot. But, but the thing is, <laughs> we are all silent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I let that sink in. <laughs> you, you, you do, you run your business from your phone. And a lot, I mean, you have a huge following, so you like, you have to do it, right? Yeah, but I have a social media manager. I'm really rethinking my life decisions right now, Doug. (laughs) Well, and and that's the thing. I know that you did, um, you know, you outsource some, so you have a social media manager. Um, And did you have concerns? Because it is such a personal channel and you ran this whole thing by yourself until what, like six months ago, right? And then you have someone else that's, running a lot for you not not quite Mm -hmm. enough yet so we can talk about that later but yeah did you have any concerns bringing someone on to do some of that work uh i did at first because you're trusting somebody with like logins and passwords and that's a pretty big deal and you know and i'm a control freak and a type a perfectionist there you know that's that sucks so it's it's just hard to give that over but my social media manager is amazing. She's so good at what she does. And she, she's been really good at being able to repurpose a lot of my content, you know, replicate my voice. Um, she responds to a lot of my comments and DMS and takes a lot of time off of my plate. I'm still creating 90% of my own original content. So the content creation is pretty much me, but she does a lot of the other work, but it was scary. I've had a VA for two years now too. It's just, mostly it's hard to delegate. And I think that's probably something that all solopreneurs struggle with. But if you want to grow your business and have a successful business, there comes a point where that's necessary. Cool. And anything else with uh, social media, like any other pros or cons that you want to highlight? I just, I I view it as a necessary evil, which I know is not a great way to view it. I hate the word influencer. I never intended to start a business to be a social media influencer. And I don't know how often I, I get associated with that, but I really intended to start a business to become an author. And I did have sort of a revelation this year. I've gotten so far away from writing books and it's been three years since I wrote my last book. And I spend so much time now creating social media content, which is great because I know I'm helping a lot of people for free, but I really feel that my calling is writing. So my goal next year is to write another book. I have seven book ideas. I'm really excited to get back to writing and to outsource more of the social media. And that is what I'm looking forward to. And then are you willing to sacrifice some of the like social media following or growth so that you can focus 
like knowing that like, Hey, if you're not going to spend as much time on it and you hire, you know, your social media manager to, to do the stuff. Um, yeah. Are you willing to just like, let it f- fall a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not getting me to my goals, which my goals are writing, increasing my passive income, building back up my real estate portfolio and having a certain number of following doesn't, doesn't matter. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We're at an hour. Where should we go from here, Doug? Yeah, I think, well, we, we have a few more minutes here, so let's hit the, some of the speaking stuff and I'll, I'll kick that over to you. Yeah. So Rachel, I, I know you just spoke at BPCon. I was there for a little bit and I heard that your talk may have been the most well attended one there. Is that rumor oh. true or false? I don't know. I don't know the numbers. I wish I did. I do know that my registration was, was full. And so over 500 people registered and attended and there were people standing. So I think over 500 people were there at my talk, which was okay. so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I admit I was a little bit nervous for you because I was following you on social media and you kept on, it, you, you talked about it a lot. I remember one of them, yeah, the three outfits, you're like, I'm going to pick this. I don't know which one to pick. I'm like, Rachel, no, no one's going to give a shit. Just go up there and <laughs> do what you do and they're going to love it. And they'll remember you and not what you were wearing. But how did, was that your biggest crowd ever? It was, and and I was nervous, and I I am pretty open about that I'm a nervous public speaker. You know, again, I'm an introvert. I am a nervous public speaker, and I know you're not supposed to affirm that, but I have just accepted it at this point. I have done so much public speaking in the years and years I've been running my business that I don't think it'll ever fully go away. And one thing my speaking coach told me is that it's a good thing. Being nervous means that you care. If you're not nervous, then you, you're just, then you don't care. And I, I like, so I like that. And I like feeling that way. And I know now that I've done this enough times and I have enough practice that I can get on stage and my nerves won't show because I know how to be a composed and eloquent and confident speaker despite the nerves. And I also know that after the first two minutes, the nerves will completely go away And I practiced for that speech so much, hours and hours and hours. I hired a speaking coach. He helped me with the content. He helped me practice. So by the time I actually gave it, I was so sick of giving that speech because I had given it in my bedroom probably 30 times. But I am proud of myself. You know, when Bigger Pockets asked me to give the speech, I sort of hemmed and hawed. And it's a huge honor, though. You know, who would say no to that opportunity? So I was like, why would I say no? But it was something where I knew if I said no, I was giving into my fear and I wasn't, there's no way I was going to do that. So I, I absolutely accepted with, and I'm so thankful for that. And I'm, I'm definitely proud of myself. Anytime I achieve a public speaking thing like that, I'm very, very proud of myself. Super cool. So I've given talks too, and it used to scare the shit out of me. Like I was absolutely terrified. And like you, it's still a little bit, but not nearly as bad as it used to. And what I found is, there's a bunch of conventional advice like focus on one person, picture the audience in their underwear, and all that shit, like none of that shit actually worked for me. Did it work for you? And if not, do you have any unconventional tips for public speaking? <laughs> no, that doesn't work for me. There are, I think there's two kinds of public speakers. There's someone who needs to be completely prepared like me, and there's someone who thrives on, on going up there and winging it. And I, I don't understand that kind of person at all. That blows my mind. Good for them, though. That's amazing. 
So I would just say, figure out which kind of person you are and, you know, plan for that. If you're someone like me who just needs to be ultimately prepared, then that's what you have to do. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's what works. I was going to say, I, I haven't done as much speaking as you two. Um, I have to be really prepared as well. And I was thinking of people that wing it and a lot of times, at least the times that I've seen it, they think they can wing it, but it never turns out as well as it could have been if they spent a little time on it. And a lot of times it ends up like a total train wreck. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So if you think you can wing it, um, you know, have a friend watch you wing it first and let them and have them tell you if you can actually wing it or not. Yeah, yeah. Because my whole speech was memorized word for word. Okay. How, how did you go about memorizing it? Just practice over okay. and over again. Like I literally recited it in my bedroom to my family over Zoom. I recited it at one of Ziana's meetups in Boulder, Colorado for practice. But I... I I literally think I gave that speech 30 times in whole before I ever got on that stage at Bigger Pockets. Gotcha. So we'll have to wrap up here, but I was going to say there's a technique called a memory palace, and that's what I did to memorize a talk. And I'll tell you about it later. People can Google it, but basically it's like a an old school method um, to memorize something sort of in, in segments. And it's a very easy technique. And once I, once I went through and created the memory palace, which took like 20 minutes, I memorized the rest of the speech in like another hour or something like that. I mean, not, not word for word, but pretty close. Cause you probably alter the phrasing occasionally from, you know, uh, one talk to another, right? Yeah. So pretty cool. I'll tell you later. You have it figured out, but it could save you a little bit of time. And then like the cool part is if you get interrupted, like if the power goes out or like the Wi-Fi goes out and your slides get messed up, like you, you can jump back in where I know sometimes if you memorize word for word, like you have to like think about everything before and before you could jump back in. So yeah, true. That's awesome. Cool. So what does a perfect day look like for you? Great question. I, I mean, right now I'm looking out at the ocean and I got up this morning. I read a book. I did a little bit of work. I went to the gym. I'm on this lovely podcast with you all. And I have another coaching call and then I'm going to go walk on the beach. Um, maybe do some more work and relax a little bit. And this is pretty close right now. So I I mean, maybe a a perfect day would also include a hike or I maybe would be traveling. But what's really cool is now that I'm financially independent, I get to make my life whatever I want. And I was actually just thinking that it was, I feel so fortunate that once it, once it snowed in Denver, I was like, I'm ready to leave. (laughs) So (laughs) I booked a you know, a three week trip on the beach, um, cause I wanted to be someplace warm and sunny and I can work wherever. But I, I really feel like my life right now is, is pretty close to what I want my dream life to be. And I, I recognize that as a 30 year old, that is an incredible thing to be able to say. So I'm very, very grateful. It's freaking fantastic. You're 30. And I liked what you said earlier on the podcast too, where you said, I value my time more than money. And you're 30. That's uh, I still haven't. I'm not as uh, 
enlightened as you, Rachel. So you are an inspiration to me, and I hope to follow in your footsteps and embrace my time more than I embrace making money. <laughs> oh, thank you, Carl. I, that means a lot. <laughs> Rachel, this has been amazing. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Where should people find you? Yes, thank you. So you can follow me on IG at Money Honey Rachel. And both of my books, Money Honey and Passive Income, are available in all formats, ebook, paperback, audiobook on Amazon. And what I would love to do for your followers is if anyone listening would like to download my passive income starter kit, I will give that for free. So you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com forward slash passive income to download that. Great. We will link up to all that so people can get to it really easy in the show notes or description. So thanks, Rachel, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in in person. So the virtual kind is pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. Rachel, what's your favorite part of uh, Thanksgiving? Oh, the food. The, my mom makes green rice and corn pudding. Nice. But I won't be there this time because I'm I'm I've chosen to self isolate. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Can we? <laughs> are you? What are you going to eat at, <laughs> on Thanksgiving then? I don't know. I don't. Maybe I have to figure that out. Okay. Chick Fil A. Are they open? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I need to figure this out. <laughs> is it Sunday? Probably. I don't think so. No, yeah, it's no. Thursday. It's always th- yeah, Thanksgiving's yeah. on Thursday this year. But are they going to be Thanks. open? <laughs> Wait, and what is green rice and corn pudding? I'm not sure I've ever heard of any of those. Like, there's the Wait, really? Corn? Is that just a really Kentucky thing? <laughs> I, I guess so. It's a KY thing. So what is it? Green rice is this rice dish that's cheesy and has broccoli and all this yummy stuff mixed in. Okay. And maybe that's just a family recipe, honestly. And then corn pudding, that's definitely a Southern thing. I don't know how to describe it. Do you know what it is, Doug? I th- I think so. Like, um, I, uh, at first, uh, number one, I thought it was like green rice and corn pudding, like together, like green eggs and ham. And I was like, oh, that is nuts. <laughs> Let's just pave over that and just move on. But I'm glad you asked uh, further. <laughs> the corn pudding, I think so. Is it like a, um, 
is it like cornbread with cor- like cream corn in it or kind of yeah so it's so it's cornbread okay. it's sort of creamy but also fluffy mm. um i really would now like to invite you both to kentucky yeah for thanksgiving next year <laughs> okay uh, or yeah, I'll bring the food to you. I can't cook. We'll figure it out. But yeah, yeah, it's a shame you haven't tasted these things. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. In the green, right? Okay, yeah, we'll we'll check it out. We can do a post Thanksgiving. <laughs> we could like do this uh, sometime later, whenever whenever you're around. Maybe for like uh, St. Patrick's Day, green rice that fits. Yeah, <laughs> is know. it actually green or? It's yellow greenish. Okay. It's it looks I know that this doesn't sound like it looks appealing, but it does when it's in front of you. It looks very appetizing. It sounds delicious to me. Yeah. Yeah. You don't sound that doesn't sound <laughs> you, you don't sound sold. I'll 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 eat whatever though. I mean I like rice and I like um corn, so I think it's just a spin on yeah. the two. <laughs> all the carbs. I, I want all the carb dishes yeah. in my belly. Now, Carl, what about you? What what's your favorite? Thanksgiving dish? Uh, probably the stuffing. Just the shit that comes out of the box, like stovetop. But this oh, year, yeah, yeah I, lo- I love the stovetop. And you put a bunch of gravy and cranberry shit on top there. But this year, I was at Costco, and they had sourdough stuffing. And I like sourdough bread. So we are going to make that as well. So Okay. So that'll be there on, on Thursday? Yes, it will. I'm curious Excellent. to hear what you have to think. I guess we have to get asparagus into it, too. I hadn't even thought of that, but it's on brand. You're going to be there. I'll be there. Uh, Rachel, we are always we always talk about asparagus for some reason. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. She, she's, I know. she's participated in some of this uh, <laughs> yeah. hijink before. Yeah, yeah. We, I know all about those conversations. Yeah. Uh, okay, good. Doug, what's your favorite part of Thanksgiving? <laughs> oh, wow. I... It's really hard to pick one. I do love stuffing, just like you were saying. Um, but I think like, I, I don't know if I could pick one thing. I know it's my question. Um, but, and I don't want to copy you. So I'll say mashed potatoes and gravy. Mm. You know, I think we're focusing on carbs and that's like right right where it should be. <laughs> and uh, we we actually did a, a little Thanksgiving with um, some neighbors a couple days ago. Um, because we wanted to have leftovers. So I roasted a turkey on Sunday. And the thing is, we're going to like a gathering. So we're not going to get leftovers from there, we don't think. So we wanted to have like all the stuff. So we made like way more food than four people should like have. And then we all had like a ton of leftovers. Like I made a 14 and a half pound turkey for four people. (laughs) Awesome. So we all have leftovers. I like the way you think. And Doug, I actually have a special treat this Thanksgiving. Dan, who was recently on the podcast, is on the East Coast now. And do you know Treehouse Brewing? Have you heard of that before? I've heard of them, yeah. Yeah, it's like a world-class place. It's great. And he sent us a bunch of beer from that place. So I'll bring some to Thanksgiving. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, let's...